Well, let me give you an example because this is a lot of what would happen. There are always big ideas thrown out from me or from the band. So I remember one of them being in 1994, we were getting into arenas and there was one conversation in 94 before New Year's. We're going to do New Year's at the Boston Garden, I think. It was like, man, some kid is going to get the worst seat in the house. This is exactly how this went. Some dude is going to walk in or gal or whatever and walk up to the nosebleed in the back and you're like oh my god i am the furthest person <laughs> from the stage of anyone in this whole room and it's like man wouldn't it be cool if there's like some way that for one moment we were closer to that person than to the person in the front row much to their surprise and they'd be like oh that's so cool oh, that's great we should how do you do that and it's like oh man i got an idea you know so this would be band practice we should like have a track hanging from the ceiling where as we're playing, the four of us just start floating forward and then all of a sudden we're one foot in front of this guy's face. And we're like, hey man, and we like high five him and then we go back to the stage and it's like, yeah, that'd be really cool. So then like the next day, you know, like I might go into the office or something. I'm like, hey, we've got this idea. At New Year's Eve, we're going to slide across the track all the way to this guy and we're going to be right in front of him. It's like, uh, is this really possible? And a lot of times the answer ends up being yes. So on that particular night, it's like, we're going to have a track. Yes, you can have a track. You're going to go all the way. And one person is going to be blown away and be closer to you. And everything that they thought about their experience is going to be turned upside down. And we got a track. And then the next conversation is like, well, how do you want to get there on this track? It's like, uh, I don't know, uh, what if we like flew in something? Like, I don't know, like a hot dog, right? <laughs> Just because it was weird. So, lo and behold, the hot dog idea came from that. The first intent of the hot dog idea was for one person's mind to be blown. That is how the hot dog was invented. It wasn't like, let's find a hot dog. It's let's get up close to someone. That story pretty much explains everything that Fish has ever done. That's Fish's Trey Anastasio explaining how he and his bandmates came to climb aboard a 15-foot-long Frankfurter at midnight on December 31st, 1994 and fly across the Boston Garden, performing Old Lang Syne while suspended above the audience. The prop meat stick currently hangs in an atrium at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. Although the hovering hot dog first appeared as a New Year's Eve gag, Trey was describing its creation to illustrate the iterative process by which Fish's renowned festivals have come together. And trust me, you're going to want to learn how the sausage was made. I'm Dean Budnick, and on this episode of Long May They Run, we're going to focus on the fish fests from Clifford Ball to Curveball. This season, on Long May They Run, over the course of 10 episodes, we're going to dig deep into the world of fish. Except this won't be a biographical podcast. Instead, we're going to explore a variety of topics that reflect the band's wide-ranging musical legacy and cultural impact. Whether you're a fish diehard or a general live music enthusiast, 
I promise we'll have something for you. As we hear from the people who were on the scene, facilitating the action, and taking it all in. One individual who qualifies on both those counts is Fish keyboard player Paige McConnell. Three years before Coachella and six years before Bonnaroo, the band began planning what would become the Clifford Ball. At that time, the only models of large-scale camping events were European fests, like England's Glastonbury and Denmark's Roskilde, where Fish performed in the summer of 1992. Still, no individual groups were attempting anything like this. Here's Paige. The experience of going to any kind of a concert or festival in the States, up until that point, our experience was you would get your ticket and you would go into the venue, and then once you left the venue and the concert ended, you were sort of on your own, and there was no sort of fluidity between the whole experience, your your tent site and the stage, and being able to sort of wander around and mingle and enjoy the whole experience. So it was a goal of ours to try and set just that sort of a thing up. We were doing it ourselves, and we were flying by the seat of our pants, and we didn't know how many people were going to come, and we didn't know all of the logistics and how it was going to work. We wanted to have it be more than just the experience of going to see the band on stage, and we wanted it to be interactive. The Clifford Ball, which was the first official fish festival, took place at a decommissioned Air Force base in Plattsburgh, New York, on August 16th and 17th, 1996, drawing 70,000 concertgoers, most of whom remained on site, camping through the weekend. The group had previously hosted no other events that neared this scale. Trey recalls, Early on, we were very much a party band. There's a ridiculous video online from 1980s. Mike and I, with very long hair, playing at this place called The Ranch, where all our friends would come and we would play outside. You know, we had a party. We played at this pig roast. And it was so fun, and all our friends were there, and there's kind of a tape that floats around in the pig roast, and there's 8,000 dogs barking and all this stuff. This must have been 1985. It was always that with Fish. We were a party band, and we tried to take care of our friends. We wanted everybody to be comfortable. And we always had a gang of friends from the beginning. Always. I'm talking about from the first gig. I remember who was in the front row at our first Fish shows, our friend Amy. Amy Skelton had been a fellow freshman at UVM in the fall of 1983 with drummer John Fishman, bassist Mike Gordon, and guitarist Anastasio, and would earn the title of first fan. Incidentally, to complete a thumbnail history of the current quartet, keyboard player Paige McConnell joined Fish in the fall of 1985 after sitting in with them the prior spring at Goddard College, where he was a student, and where Anastasio and Fishman would later transfer. Back to Amy. Many years later, she would join the Fish organization as merchandise manager. But here, she looks back to her initial connection with the group eight years prior to the event that is now referred to as Amy's Farm. I met Fishman before he had met the rest of the band members, and we were fast becoming friends in our freshman year when he met Trey, and then they started to play. So I was there kind of right at the beginning. We were all, you know, new at school. And then they started to play together. And the very first gigs, I was there because I was supporting my buddy who was doing this fun thing. And it was a good time, you know, so I would show up every time. But very quickly, it went from, you know, just hanging out with my buddy to, oh, this is really kind of cool. 
On August 3rd, 1991, Fish performed a free one-day thank you show in Auburn, Maine. They were celebrating the band's upcoming 8th anniversary for 2,000 folks who made their way to a 255-acre horse stable run by Amy. I was a riding instructor and had a couple hundred acres there, and there was this one field that was sort of, you know, tucked away back there. It was totally flat. And I always thought, this would be an awesome place for a gig. So I said, why don't you you guys come over to my house tomorrow, and we'll go out and take a look at the field. So everybody came over, and I put them all on horseback, and we rode out there. And everybody agreed, you know, that'd be really cool. And they said, you know, that'd be great. Let's do this thing. So we ended up building a stage with cast-off lumber from my friend, and it was a hoot. It was a blast. Matt Lawrence, who started the original email list for fish fans, which evolved into the fishnet, was on the band's snail mail list at this time, during an era before the term snail mail even existed. And he recalls receiving his invitation. You know, it was this little three-by-five card mailer kind of thing saying, hey, we want to have a thank you party, and our good friend Amy is opening up her farm, so come on up. Let us say thanks to you for being fans. But we drove in, driving in up small rural main roads, and when we got there, it was just a big, open, free environment. And the sound check was completely open to people because obviously there were no walls, there was nothing to keep people out. And as time drew closer, everyone was gathered around the stage, and then Amy came on and said something. Thank you all for coming. Good, happy feeling, good vibes out there in the field. It's great. And, you know, Fishman came on and did this whole monologue about the charity they were collecting for. You might want it to go. Okay, so I'm not a great talker, all right? Okay, but the point is... We don't usually let him talk, but today... We don't usually let me talk, but this is important. We have to listen to this all the time. And then they kicked into that Wilson and, you know, the place went crazy. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. John Paluska managed the band from 1989 to 2004, initially taking on this role while a junior at Amherst College after an inspiring experience in Burlington at Nectar's, the Main Street restaurant and bar that served as the group's first proving ground. Initially, 
John shared managerial duties with Ben Hunter, whose nickname, Junta, later served as the title of Fish's debut studio album. By August of 1991, Ben had moved on, and John recalls that the Amy's Farm event was a clear precursor of things to come. Amy's Farm was probably the first little brush with something like a festival for us. A lot of these marathon gigs at somebody's farm or what have you that weren't even, that didn't even have tickets involved. All those countless gigs up there on people's farms and in backyards and, you know, long, lazy afternoons of the band just playing on somebody's porch, you know, out in a field somewhere. That kind of stuff really was very formative for them. The band loved being in a situation with a bunch of fans where they were doing everything on their terms, on their time, without having to fit into anybody else's structures. In my memory, the biggest influence on our festival culture was Bread and Puppet. In the 80s, we used to go see Bread and Puppet up in Vermont. And the Bread and Puppet festivals were not music festivals. They were political theater. Very Vermont, dated back to the 60s. And these people had all kind of moved up into the rural area of Vermont. And they would do these thematically based summer festivals. There'd be maybe 5,000 people. And they would clean out the woods and make these magical places that you could go. And then at the end, there'd be little skits within the woods. You'd wander through the woods. And then at the end, there would be a big pageant. So I remember one year was the year of a big oil spill that happened. And they recreated the oil spill silently with hundreds or maybe a thousand people underneath plastic sheets that came slowly over the hill. And it was very emotional, very powerful. This influenced us in a huge way. We always wanted our festivals to be modeled after Bread and Puppet. Russ Bennett had performed with Bread and Puppet. I manipulated puppets with the theater for years and, and did some touring with them. But, but the pageants and the circus in Vermont, with these big movements of visuals over space, and more often than not, slowing them down as opposed to speeding them up, so that you had to pay attention and you'd be watching something coming over the hill here, and then you didn't even realize that something else had entered 400 yards off to your right <laughs> until it was closer to you. But at any click in time, it's always quite stunning visually and powerful. Bennett, a builder and visual design artist, wasn't that familiar with the music of Fish when asked to come aboard. He would work alongside Vermont native and sculptor Lars Fisk, who had first connected with the band's song Fluffhead while in high school. Bennett drew on his bread and puppet background and applied some of that aesthetic to the event's visual design choices as they began contemplating the Clifford Ball. What I thought was the right thing to do was to say, we're creating a temporary city. Cities have gathering spaces. They have parks in them. They have places where people commune. And it was Clifford Ball, so it was logical to have Ball Square, right? <laughs> so... We created within the venue this artistic little village that had street performers and other types of performance and art interpretation of life and a place for people to gather, a sculptural centerpiece, 
it was really reaching out to the fans and saying, hey, hi, we're glad you're here, and here's a place where you can all sort of meet. And that turned out to be sort of the beginning of the format for many festivals that emerged from that. Fish is in its own category because they're artists, they're driven by art, and my personal opinion about art is we need to work on that side of our minds if we're going to save the species <laughs> because we don't need any more settings on the dishwasher, you know. This localized community planning model was very much at the heart of what Fish hoped to achieve at the Clifford Ball. It was important to us that we had our own radio station. We wanted to have our own post office, to have our own facilities for people to buy things. And we really wanted to make it a community. And that was the goal from the first one, to make it a community and, and make it a sustainable community for just a couple of days. And Trey suggests that this ran counter to the homogenized national culture that was increasingly being served up to the masses through platforms such as MTV. We started in... 1983, but we were formed, our gestation period was 78 to 80. You know, we were young, we were in high school, we were all in our first high school bands. MTV came along the year before we started the band. We were disgusted by MTV. I absolutely remember just what is this nightmare that suddenly you're supposed to look cool, look glossy and shined, and that the visual became more important than the music. People were consuming music through the TV. The whole thing just seemed like a nightmare, like a horrible nightmare to the four of us living as hippies up in Vermont and going to see Bread and Puppet. We wanted to get the hell away from every aspect of the music industry. That was our number one concern, to get as far away as possible. So we started doing these festivals. If you look closely, our first order of business was to put them as far away from humanity as we could possibly put them. We wanted this organic gathering of people that was honest and community-based and event-based and you know, memories were being built. And like I said, we would build in time for people to be together. It was a cultural change in reaction to what was being spoon-fed to us by record companies and whatnot. The next one after Clifford Ball that was suggested by our, you know, booking agents and people like that, were like, let's do one at Randall's Island. This, I remember this very clearly being in the office with our manager, John, and, and kind of saying, fuck Randall's Island. Let's go to fucking, what's the northernmost point in America that you can get to? How far away from humanity can you get and still be in America? And we found Limestone, Maine, which, if you look at the map, is like nine hours north of Portland. It's basically in Canada, but it's still in America. So the next two were in Limestone. And we were absolutely, gloriously, and beautifully ignored by all popular culture. This thing was going on every year with 70, 80,000 people.
As the festival moved to Limestone in 1997 for what would be called the Great Went, Lars Fisk was eager to apply his experience from the first go-round. I'd never seen that many people at a festival, and the extent to which a gathering like that could be so energetic and and having known the band that much more intimately with another year, I went at them, you know, we had some proper meetings at that point. We sat down. They said, what would you like to do this year? And I said, well, I have three ideas. And I had conjured a sort of a small, medium, large package. The small being something that I felt, you know, pretty confident that I could pull off and it seemed reasonable. And then a medium-sized notion that was pretty far out beyond really what I was able to do. And then a third that was so absurdly large and ridiculously elaborate that I just thought, well, what the hell, we'll just throw it out there to see what the parameters are far or wide. And uh, I sort of expected, well, you know, they'll see this project as a possibility and maybe they'll go for the, the crazy one and that being mid-size. And so having laid them all out with my drawings and models and proposal blather, they said, that sounds great. Let's do them. Let's do them all. Trey recalls inviting Lars into a creative session and the artist sometimes opted for the dramatic reveal. So we would have these meetings with the band and, and John in his office and we'd have a table and We'd throw ideas out, and Lars is always really quiet over in the corner. And, and then everybody would be riffing on these names and crazy ideas. And then he would kind of like pull this thing out from underneath the table, and, and all of us would just be falling over in our chairs, like, oh my God. Like, you would always wait, you know, like 45 minutes to reveal this thing. Fish's collective iterative process applied to most every aspect of their festivals, including, of course, the event's names. Clifford Ball, who became the namesake for Fish's first major event, was a Pittsburgh-based pilot and entrepreneur who facilitated the development of air travel in the 1920s and 30s. Page remembers the band became aware of him through a chance plaque sighting. It was just a plaque on a wall at the airport, and Clifford Ball had been an early aviator in the area. And we just kind of passed it, and, you know, it stuck with us. It was a picture of him and a little plaque, Clifford Ball, a beacon of light in the world of flight, bronze plaque. And I think it was a great name for our festival. <laughs> but this is very fish, you know. I don't know. It made a lot of sense to us. <laughs> We don't like things that are that on the nose, usually. The thing is, the band first noticed the plaque four years before the event in Plattsburgh. In July of 1992, Fish joined Blues Traveler, Widespread Panic, Spin Doctors, and Aquarium Rescue Unit on the first four dates of the inaugural Horde Tour. Fish was not altogether sold on the name Horde, so Mike Gordon compiled a series of names that the band sent along to the other groups. At the very top, is a note from Mike that reads, We saw the plaque while finding a phone to call John Popper, a beacon of light in the world of flight. We can get more info on this guy and recreate his world. However, this didn't quite come to pass, and Horde remained. The list contains more than two dozen options, including the Farm Fresh Banana Festival, East Coast Rockasui, Big Big Spinach Rock Party, Five Bands That Stink, 
and Rock Dunky Dunkle, 1992. As Trey holds the list, he reads the names and laughs. Oh, my God, this is the other one that we always, every single time we've ever done a festival, this one has come up. John Paluska remembers another example of this collective creative process. The band also got this idea that an airplane could fly over the crowd and they could have these bizarre sayings. You know, you, you see the airplanes flying around with ads for something or something stupid. So the band thought, hey, we'll, we'll hire an airplane and have it fly over with things like, I remember for whatever reason, the one I remember was said, a dime from here would penetrate. <laughs> and of course, like, you know, this is a perfect example of kind of just the countless hours these guys would spend just in complete hysterics and just laughing, crying, laughing so hard. Once the idea was set upon, like, we're going to have an airplane pilot fly by and drag some banner and it's going to just be really weird. And there's, of course, endless possibilities. Well, what what are we going to have it say? And, you know, Mike was the, the guy who would always come up with the festival names. He, anytime there was something we were brainstorming, he would show up with a list a mile long. He, he's incredibly creative with coming up with stuff like this. So Mike would start with a list like that and that that would lead to all kinds of other ideas. And for, you know, for a couple hours, we would literally be sitting in the conference room trying to come up with, <laughs> what are we going to say behind the airplane? <laughs> like that, that would be a meeting. <laughs> As John suggests, some of this joke turns on the fact that banners trailing behind planes are typically used for advertising purposes. This was a hot button subject for Fish's manager who took particular offense at outside advertising visible during the band's performances. He rebelled against any kind of commercialism as a manager. So much so that when we went on stage for the first set at Clifford Ball, John used to go around and make sure that every ad was covered, if there were any ads of any kind, and all lights were turned off. Even in arenas, he used to walk around and cover up the ads completely anti-commercial, no money from the record company for the band. Everything was self-sufficient. We did everything in-house, even merchandising. It was almost problematic. It was so, we were so isolated based on some kind of, you know, Vermont left anti-commercial philosophy. Anyway, at Clifford Ball, we went on for our first set. (laughs) The poor guy who was running the Mr. Sausage truck forgot to turn his light off. And I remember there was a big whoop-de-doo. We started the first note, and all of a sudden, everyone was running over to the mist. Turn off your light! Like, throwing blankets over it. Like, because John wouldn't stand for any kind of mixture of commerce and music. I mean, we felt the same way, but I do have to give him credit because he really pushed that agenda through the 90s. And I think it had a huge impact on the overall feeling that people were getting, that they weren't being sold something. Again, the community building aspect was always a primary concern for the band. This was never taken for granted, and the group continued to review and refine its approach over the years. Listen, our festivals were large, but we feel like it wasn't the size of it, it was the intent. John and I would sit in his office for six hours a day talking about this stuff before these festivals, riffing. What can we do? How can it be better? We each had a copy of this book. He may have given me a copy of it or something. It was called A Pattern Language. We would read chapters of A Pattern Language, which was about planning. I think it was town planning, community planning. And that was our Bible, our pre-festival Bible. How far do you have to walk? What's the view going to be when you walk from the stage to the campground? 
you know, you don't want a garish view. You don't, people like to feel enclosed. Maybe we can put this thing over here by the woods. When we planned the festivals, we weren't trying to get anywhere. We were trying to create events that were in and of themselves outside of the stream of commerce-driven music, MTV, giant record companies, you know, record companies spewing out money to bands to try to build them up. We weren't taking any of that money. We were doing everything in-house ourselves and trying to create our own little Eden. That's kind of what we were trying to do. A Pattern Language, Towns, Buildings, Construction, is a 1977 book on architecture and urban design written by three renowned professors at the University of California, Berkeley. This self-described sourcebook examines the core elements at the heart of building and nurturing a community. It's not light reading, literally. A pattern language is 1,171 pages long. Everything from how we set up the campground to how we park the cars to the fact that instead of saying security on the shirts, all of our security team, their shirts said safety, to, you know, what food we serve, to all of the art installations and sort of whimsical, magical, unexpected things that they got to throw at fans from every which way to the length of the show they could perform and the midnight set on the flatbed truck driving through the campground. You know, it was just this incredible tableau for the band to dream up crazy ideas and do them. And that was kind of the point. It was, you know, I remember at one of the festivals, we pulled a line from a Shakespeare play that said, I think it was Lemon Wheel, and there was a big, big sign on, a, on an archway that said, our full intent is all for your delight or something like that. And that really summed up what their whole point it was. It was like, how many different ways can we create magic, magical moments for people? Celebrated rock photographer Danny Clinch, who'd go on to document Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam, Ben Harper, and many others, was at the Clifford Ball and appreciates the overarching philosophy and how it played out from a visual perspective. All the more so now that he has co-created his own event, See Here Now. Oh man, I tell you, the fish festivals for me have just been completely mind-blowing. And, you know, the festivals have become what they are, and I have my own festival and See Here Now. I feel like they were the first to understand that the whole movement was an experience. It wasn't just the shows, but it was what are you going to give to the fans aside from the show? All these great experiences, these second line, one man band, you know, parade of huge puppet characters into a Ferris wheel and, you know, late night sets on a flatbed truck. I mean, they freaking did it all. While the Clifford Ball took place in upstate New York, the band ensured that there was a steady Vermont presence, from the staffing on through two special guests who performed with the group. On the second day of the festival, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, of Ben & Jerry's fame, ran out on stage to deliver guest vocals during the Fish original Brother. Here's Paige again. I think we just wanted to get them on stage in a fun and cool way. You know, I, I guess at the time, and really... Always, I consider somewhat ambassadors for the state and and, uh, try to represent appropriately wherever we are. But I do remember those guys being on stage and coming out, and I believe they sang one of the verses of Brother. 
and they're not great singers. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I guess that's the musical moment I remember from Clifford Bulb and Jerry's <laughs> off-key singing. <laughs> I'm not convinced I use that one in the episode. No, but, you can uh, use that. Please, please do. They? <laughs> Absolutely. They, they'll get a kick out of it. Well, okay then. I'm sending this special long-distance dedication to ice cream icons Ben and Jerry from Paige with sweet memories from the Clifford Ball. Another aspect of the fish festivals that the band initially manifested at the Clifford Ball was an effort to allow for serenity. We built in an enormous amount of silent, friend and thought-provoking time. So at the Great Went, at Clifford Ball, at Lemon Wheel, there was scheduled periods of, say, five or six hours where there was no boom, boom, boom. There was no band playing, nothing. Our assumption was that four hours of music is enough for one day. And then during the morning, we might have an orchestra playing Debussy or something like that. The rest of the time, these art installations, which were extremely developed, would be open for people to wander through them. And we built in enough silent time for people to wander through these areas and contemplate. And also to be with their friends. We always thought that a big part of the thing was to have time to share time with your friends. And then the concert would start at night. But I think that what has happened, okay, there were no festivals in the 90s. Now there's 100 festivals. There weren't any. There was Lollapalooza, which was a touring concert. It wasn't really a festival. I mean, we were making this stuff up as we went along. And I think one of the things that we often comment on, the four of us, when we see the way festivals are built now, is that somewhere along the line, there was a concept of more is more built into festivals, which we think is a huge loss. We didn't think more is more, meaning 120 bands makes for a better experience for the festival goer. I think it's too much for the most part, unless it's handled very well. It's too much to take in. And that, you know, when you should be getting a couple of minutes of reset time for your brain, what you're hearing is from a distant stage or two distant stages, you know, boom, 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 boom all night long. I'm basically saying that when I think back to those early festivals and I've talked to people who were at them, that's the part that seems to have been lost and forgotten. One element that certainly endures as another hallmark of the Fish Festival experience has been the bonus set. The very first one was at Clifford Ball and we played on the back of a flatbed truck that was driving slowly up and down the runway at about 1.30 in the morning. So a lot of people were already down. A lot of people didn't see it. We didn't do the entire runway. We played for about 20 minutes or a half an hour, slowly driving as Frank and the mounted horses were sort of following us on either side. And the truck had been decorated in these white Christmas lights. And it was just, in a lot of ways, we often refer back to the flatbed truck jam as something that was a really special moment, not just because musically it felt very special, but the entire event, wouldn't it be cool? Almost like a dream, you know? Did that really happen? The band just rolled by on a flatbed truck playing at two o'clock in the morning and, you know, unannounced. And that was kind of the goal of it. And I don't know in its conception and in its simplicity 
for me that it's ever gotten better than that. But part of it is that it is something that not everybody gets to see because it's not really announced and you have to just happen upon it. And so there's an element of chance and spontaneity to the whole thing that is a thread that's run throughout our festivals. Following the Clifford Ball in 1996, Fish hosted three events in Limestone, Maine. The Great Went in 1997, Lemon Wheel in 1998, and later It in 2003. At the third of these, the band delivered another memorable late-night set, hidden in plain sight atop a former air control tower. For those who haven't seen pictures, the tower is about nine stories straight up. And the only way to get up to the top is these little stairs, single file. So all of our gear had to be carried up these stairs. And we sat up on the top. And from where we were on top of the tower, we couldn't really see. We weren't so close to the edge that we were looking over the top. But we could hear that there were people below. And we just got up and did an improvisational set. One of the things that we had were some folks that were artistic repellers, uh, dancers almost, that would would repel and did these sorts of things on mountains and various structures, and and this was their activity. And working with Chris McGregor, who's been responsible for a lot of the gags we've done at New Year's, designed this event on the tower so that in coordination with these repelling acrobats, with lights and with uh, banners that unfurled at at certain times. And so we had cues. We didn't know exactly what we were going to play, and we didn't know exactly how long it was going to be, but we had cues. If we knew they were going to be going into a certain move, we were aware of that. And when it was time to drop the banners, we were aware of that. And we had a little tiny TV screen, maybe just a six-inch black and white screen, which was in front of the four of us. And we're all sort of huddled around playing looking at this tiny screen, watching as the folks are belaying down this control tower. And and, uh, that is the view that we had up there doing our thing. We really couldn't see anybody except focus on this little screen, which had a camera down at the base of the, the tower, which shot upwards to see what was happening. Amy Skelton makes an important point about these secret sets that is also applicable to Fish's creative approach in general. They didn't have to do that. They could just call it quits with a, you know, three sets a day in an awesome venue. But no, you know, they got to give the fans yet another special treat. And they made those events so special from, you know, the amount of effort that went into building the town, the center of the village that for each of the venues, the amount of effort that went into conceiving what that was going to look like. But, you know, they always did as much as they could to make the experience awesome. There are so many elements of Fish's festivals where if they stopped there, it would have been enough. Feel free to sing a few verses of Dianu if you wish. The thing is, going all the way back to the performance at the ranch that Trey referenced at the outset of the podcast, Fish has attempted to look after their friends and fans and create an environment that the band members could eagerly inhabit as well. This certainly happened at the group's final event of the last millennium, when they drew 85,000 people to Florida's Big Cypress Indian Reservation. The band performed for two days, culminating with what fans later described as the show. A marathon set which began at 11.30 p.m. and concluded well over seven and a half hours later, after sunrise. Before the 11 p.m. set, 
I had my guitar and I was just playing my guitar, doo -doo 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 -doo, playing scales. And I walked up to this wooden wall, right? It's like 10 minutes before we went on stage. And behind it was 80,000 people. And it was just about to be the millennium. And this crowd was making this sound. It gives me chills to this day. It was just like... And I'm like, I'm like on the other side of this plywood wall about to play a nine-hour set and come out in the new millennium. And, you know, everybody's talking about Y2K and stuff. The world's going to end. You know, there's a lot of that going on. It was just like primal. And I'm standing there just behind this wall with this seething sound of humanity on the other side. Unbelievable. Unbelievable experience. But, you know, I think... We did these things because we wanted to experience them ourselves. There was nothing to be gained, nothing to be lost. We just want to hang out with our friends, and it still feels like that. On the next episode of Long May They Run, we'll head back to Big Cypress, and then we'll learn how the band's decision to embark on a hiatus in October 2000 directly impacted the creation of Bonnaroo, Governor's Ball, and other events that may surprise you as we examine the sweeping cultural impact of Fish's festival legacy. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals, executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockeridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockeridge. Produced by Perry Crowell, mixed and mastered by Chris Basil, Production coordination by Terrence Malingone and production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney, press by Hilary Schuff, and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis, and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers. And mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.